You're out, you're doing an outside broadcast today. I'm doing I'm doing an outside broadcast today. Um, it's it's I don't know about London, but it's very nice weather, and I've sort of been cooped up inside. So I figured, let's take advantage. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And today I'm delighted to be joined by... Bill Esterson. I'm the Shadow Minister for International Trade and M- Labour MP for Sefton Central. Excellent. Bill, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Um, listeners, you'll remember um, we had a chat with Bill um, back in... Is it April? I want to say April. It might have been... May time, some sometime. It was a, It was in an, It was in another world, another yes. era, it was <laughs> another age. You know exactly. It was. A, it was a, it was a while ago. Yeah. And everything and nothing has changed. And um, yeah. So f- in that episode, the first thing I asked you was how things have been as an MP. Um, how things were going, like casework wise. Um, and you said it had been the busiest period you'd ever known as an MP. Um, so I just wanted to ask, how has that changed? How are things now? Has it changed at all? Is it still incredibly busy? It's still incredibly busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Jasper, thanks for, for uh, interviewing me again. And no, fine. We, we have continued to have a lot of people. I mean, mm. one in 20 people haven't had any financial help through this crisis. So that has been a big focus where our energies have gone, people who are self-employed too recently or over the, over the threshold or who are company directors of their own, where they're the only employee as well, mm. um, people who changed jobs at the wrong date or were on, you know, particularly in the events industry where yeah. freelancers or people go from short-term contract to, to short-term contract, that's a lot of people. That's about 3 million economically active people yeah. who've, had, who've only had... £94.25 a week. Hmm. Um, sick pay didn't move either, so that's been a real problem. And that's dominated our caseload. We've had people struggling because of the, the, the health problems, of course. Um, but um, predominantly, it's been it's been financial rather than health. And that's only going to get worse. Hmm. As, the, um, as the fellow scheme tapers off, very soon now because we're talking at the beginning of september and it ends at the beginning of uh, at the end of october doesn't it yeah that they, well it starts to cut the cut this month right yes to 60 percent. yeah i th- this is not what other countries do it was interesting yeah. listening to hancock just now in the covid update he was mm. saying i think for the first time i've ever heard him say he's learning from other countries on how, how to handle on the, on the fact that the initial increase in positive tests is among younger people and then later you know weeks later that spreads to the older population and then you start to see the death rate go up again um it's first time i've heard him learning from other countries well i hope, you le- hope that the chancellor is learning from other countries with the financial package which is germany holland france have set much longer dates for yeah winding down their furlough scheme spain hasn't even put an end date on and there's very good reasons aren't there and um yeah, that the I mentioned the creative industries. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I was talking to an events company last week, and there is no prospect of them being able to do large-scale events 
mm. they're on something like three to four percent of budget mm. and they're gonna their money will just run they had big reserves because they were very successful mm. and they are just gonna run out of money and, and, and close and that, that that's the reality unless the furlough scheme keeps going and that's repeated in manufacturing very much so it's there in in parts of the service sector too it's especially true in hospitality and, and parts of retail and i think there are millions of people who are going to lose their jobs if if it isn't extended and millions of people whose whose homes are going to be at risk too aren't they how are you going to pay your mortgage if you're on 94 pounds 25 a week because you don't get help with with mortgage interest mm. um and i'm not convinced that the rent um changes with the local housing allowance are going to be anywhere near enough to, to stop people running into significant rent arrears. It's something that's mm. already happened for a lot of people anyway, which is why we, we called for it to be um, extended, mm. uh, or the, the eviction ban to be, to be extended. Um, so uh, there are some really serious problems. And the, the honest truth is, with interest rates effectively negative, government should be extending the financial support for employers and for workers uh, as well and it is it is a combination of those things and um we can it, it's not that we don't need to worry about paying these things back but yeah right now we've already borrowed 200 billion pounds to, to deal with the crisis it's going to go up yeah and it, the problems will be far worse just yes socially yes individually less in community terms i would suggest potential for um, people to uh, take matters in their own hands and for potential for disorder will, will grow if people are really really struggling and suffering yeah um, and these things need to be avoided in, in a, by, by economic measures by supporting people and you do that for firms and families and yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's the way the, the way forward and I do think it's been a big mistake not to look after this three million excluded group Absolutely. Or should be done there too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned the creative industries and the events industries, which is mm. particularly close to uh, my heart and my interest. Because, yeah, of course. Yeah, because outside of, <laughs> outside of hosting weekly politics podcasts, I, um, well, I'm a student, but also do extensive amounts of acting and directing and involvement in, in the theatre and creative industries. Um, and they're industries which are uniquely placed to be hardest hit by a virus like this, but you can't have people yeah. together. I mean, it's good to see that some theatres are reopening. Um, and when I go back to university, our theatre is going to be open, but it's going to be, none of them are going to make any money. Um, and I mean, I, I was, I was pleased to see a report in the Sunday times on Sunday that um, the government are considering a sort of equivalent heat eat out to help out scheme for theatres and events venues, but not necessarily investing new money as they were with eat out to help out but i mean with with many things the government says they do i, I will believe it when i see it um and even then maybe not. um but yeah i mean it's, it's been greatly it's been greatly appreciated to see labor pushing for sectoral support throughout this crisis um and i mean the government has you turned on so many things and labor have been i mean you guys have been very successful in pushing the government into those u-turns you know you mentioned the, the evictions ban um as well as <laughs> the list of u-turns is exhaustive it's <laughs> but um i, I mean, think we're at 14 i think we're at 14 although 14. I've, I've lost count so i can't tell yes, you which exactly. one <laughs> and who knows who knows how many more that will be but um yeah. I, mean, I mean hopefully the government do eventually listen and recognize the need for sectoral support 
for furlough. Yeah. There's, I mean, as you mentioned, cases are going up. This isn't going away. This never went away. Um, and the the sort of idea that it could all be over by Christmas, as Boris Johnson said, was was always a fantasy and is going to be seen to be a fantasy. Um, yeah, look, we're, we're going to have to live with COVID for a very long time, um, even if even if a vaccine is seem to be successful it will take a long time to to roll it out and Mm. so that's not a short-term fix is it and and so i I think there are there are really two things that need to be done we need to prepare for a second wave which is already apparently on the way anyway with the increase in positive tests that we've seen in the last few days and prepare the you know what is the plan i think this is the question for the government I'll partially answer it. Mm. Uh, what is the plan for having society and the economy as open as possible? We talked about sectoral support, but you know, it, it, it is the health side too. You know, where is the plan to make sure that PPE is there where it's needed to be mm. for not just health and social care, and it would be good if it was in social care properly, because that still hasn't happened, um, but if for all essential workers. Um, where is the testing regime that allows you to have a test when you need it mm. um, the, and I, I, the idea we are the only country that doesn't think you should be testing people coming through airports is, is baffling that's one piece of international evidence they appear to have continued to ignore yep. and fast turnaround tests i mean hancock is now talking about 20 minute tests well I, I told him about a company that could do 15 turnaround 15 minute turnaround tests three months ago um who'd, who'd come to me and um, another company that could do 90-minute turnaround tests several months before that. These are not new ideas. Yeah. The government, because procurement, I'll come to procurement now, the procurement system is, is dire. It's turned down so many companies. There's a company founded by a Brit who wanted to supply the UK. He developed his own test in April. Mm. Um, he's in California, but he'd set up, a, he'd set up the UK operation to do this. He's now the biggest supplier in America. He supplies all the care homes in Florida, a company called Curative. And they, there are more care homes in Florida than there are in the UK. So they can do that. They could have, they could have sold our care home testing problems. They are saliva-only tests, which is mm. far easier to administer than these invasive nasal swabs, which are unreliable because mm. they're, so, um, they're so unpleasant. Um, and got absolutely nowhere, it's been given the runaround. They were given the runaround. This other testing company, the 15 minute one, given the runaround. PPE mm. companies, given the runaround. There was a report in the Financial Times yesterday about the plan back in March to create an industry to produce medical gowns, mm. reusable medical gowns. I've got a company owned by constituents who can do 40,000 of these a month, 40,000 up to 100 uses rather than single-use plastic adding to the uh, environmental problems yeah. that we have with plastic. Uh, been going through the hoops. and In all, all three of those cases, both the testing companies and the PPE company, they all have the accreditations. They've got the certificates. They've been able to demonstrate that they have a viable product. And yet, Kierman says no. In the meantime... They'll order plane loads from Turkey of stuff that falls apart. They'll give £252 million contracts to a DIT advisor who, uh, or sorry, a company because a DIT advisor is on their board. Mm. £150 million of that is unusable face masks. And 
they keep giving contracts to Serco. Try again, you might have failed with that last contract, but have another go, you might get this one right. And it's failed with test and trace. And unless they get tracing right, all of these things are gonna be difficult. So PPE, testing, tracing, um, there's another issue, um, uh, air, because it's an airborne disease. Mm. How can we um, reduce air infections? Um, and I've got a constituent that's designed an air sterilization unit. Again, now we've got nowhere with, with, with public, public mm. procurement. He's got orders from other countries and from the private sector, but not from the UK, public sector. And it's a combination of those things that allow us to live with COVID, that allow society and the economy to reopen as far as possible mm. with financial support for employers and workers mm. that will enable us to get through this. And I, you know, I don't think it's that difficult Mm. to see that that's the bigger picture. Um, the detail clearly needs to be worked through, but I, and I, I fail to understand why the government hasn't done that because the, it, the problem is it looks horribly like they have prioritized giving contracts to their mates and profiteering and, and cronyism and corruption over saving people's lives or digging their economy out of the biggest hole. Remember, we've had the biggest economic decline of any major economy in the world at 20 percent mm. and it's not going to get any better and you're going to add, me, add in a minute you're going to ask me a question about something just around the corner that's going to add to the, add, add to the woes aren't you which is called brexit <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> which we, i'm sure we'll come to that we, yeah. we absolutely will that well that yeah. is a is a nice segue but um but yeah i mean it was really it's really interesting to hear you list the companies and people who you've had direct contact with who are like like we could do this stuff now if you want and how it's just not getting anywhere um and i mean you know it's september the test test and tracing was supposed to be operational in june then it was or the app will be ready in september um what's the date today it's september the 8th i don't know where the app is um and i don't think anyone else does either um yeah, and, 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 and jasper sorry sorry to interrupt i mean no, no, it's I've, fine. Got, I've got a friend who spent the summer in germany mm. They have apps. They've had apps for months. Exactly. Yeah, you know, she could tell if there was anybody near her who'd had a positive test. So she always knew she was safe. Yeah. You and you had that. You had that added security alongside all the measures you were taking to um, to protect other people by having a face mask on and social distancing and yeah, you know, having access to to, to to regular tests. You know, it's not. Yeah, you know, if Germany can do it, why can't we? Can't we? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and it's one of, one of the things that has consistently baffled me throughout the response link, linked to what you're saying about the different companies that could step up and do this. And you see a sort of similar thing going on in the United States with, of course, their disastrous response and the opportunity that could have been taken but was missed. Um, there was a real opportunity for a sort of like national, right, let's pull together, everyone do their bit. These companies, oh, you can make, you know, you can make PPE, you can make ventilators etc fantastic let's get to work you know this sort of like sort of thinking about the narrative of it there was a great opportunity for that and you did you did see sort of inklings of that at the beginning when the government were like oh let's build fantastic british ventilators um but what's what's ended up happening as you said in, in, instead of investing in the economy and instead of um utilizing all parts of the existing uk economy to produce a an actual world beating sort of um, COVID response that hasn't happened. And as you said, it's been um, imports that don't work, um, 
contracts to mates. Um, it's, yeah. it's baffling. And maybe, I mean, you know, not, not to give the government advice, but maybe if they had done, if they had taken this sort of route, maybe they wouldn't be doing so disaster, disastrously in some of the polls, but it's, it's maddening. It's maddening. Yeah. And they, they look incompetent. Yeah. They lack credibility in their handling of, of, of COVID. Um, and more generally as well, there are other examples. And it's very difficult to see how they recover that, that, um, that, that credibility and that reputation. Yeah. I mean, people, and and the, the problems from a public health point of view is people don't trust them. So people don't trust the message. Yeah. And I think you can trace this back to, to the Cummings um, yeah. event or events, because I think there's, a more to, there's more coming out about that, isn't there, about what he, he, the, the fact that he was... He wasn't even in London when he said he was. Mm. Um, uh, and people said, well, look, if he can get away with it, why am I bothering listening? And, and I'm sure that that gave the green light to quite a few people just to say, oh, I can, I can flout those too. Yeah. Um, and so every public health message now is treated with um, suspicion, if not hostility. Mm. Uh, it makes it harder to enforce really important rules about things like mask wearing yeah um things like um you know in, in, in ensuring that uh, people are, are carrying out social distancing mm. when they go out for the evening all, all of those things that obviously have made a difference because we saw that in lockdown mm. when we weren't doing anything and um, people are going well what, what yeah, no point you know they don't care why should i and mm. you know whilst it is only a minority i think we're taking that attitude quite a small minority it doesn't need to be very many people mm. to spread the virus if they spread it in their friends with their friends and families it quickly gets through to, to most other people too exactly. so highly irresponsible by by government giving the wrong um example um i mean it was interesting wasn't it that the chief medical officer in scotland resigned because she broke the lockdown mm. um and i think one or two other people uh, apologized or, or, or stepped down when they made very very minor infringements in comparison and you saw both Dominic Cummings and Robert Jenrick remember mm -hmm. scuttling around the country to his various different homes in you know in, in, in you know, clearly was in breach of of their own guidelines yeah uh, and, and nothing being done about it and they stay in post and this is just not the way to, to carry on and you know, their whole approach is uh, we're in charge, we'll do what we like, uh, we'll give money to our mates, we'll break the rules, we don't care, and um, there's nothing you can do about it because we've got a big majority in the House of Commons. Mm. I mean, everything you've just been saying leads nicely onto what I wanted to ask next about trust, credibility, breaking the rules, Brexit. Um, <laughs> we're, so we're, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon, so yeah, Tuesday the 8th. Um, so a couple yeah. of hours ago, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, stands up in the House of Commons. Can I just do this? <laughs> Put your head in your hands. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what your response was. And he, he stood up in the House of Commons and said, when asked if their planned internal market bill legislation being put forward tomorrow, Wednesday. So listeners, you'll probably know what's in this internal market bill. We currently don't. Um, when asked if it was going to break yeah, international law. Really yeah. Yes, it will in a very specific and limited way. Um, That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, specific and limited way. It's all right. I'm only going to break the law a little bit. Yes, so don't I mean, worry. <laughs> I mean, when, when, I mean, I, I, what was your response? What was your reaction? Like, were you, 
were you surprised or was it just like oh they're just saying the quiet part out loud um i think you know the fact he was prepared to stand in the house of commons at the dispatch box as a as a cabinet minister and say we will break this break international law is quite remarkable I and mean, it was one of his own side um bob neil who asked him because mm. i mean bob is a, a, a lawyer so he was incredulous yeah um, but it followed. I mean, it, it wasn't the only thing he said of real concern. I mean, Theresa May, of all people, asked, you know, you had the previous prime minister asking a, a member of the cabinet a question uh, about the impact on our reputation of breaking international law. It was unbelievable. It really, it really, we are in this incredible through a looking glass age, I think, Jasper. Mm. And it's, it, it's a real, real worry. Um, and he couldn't. Uh, Hillary Benn asked him about the paperwork that would be needed, and he didn't know. He, he didn't know what the arrangements would be for um, goods travelling between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in either direction. What the nature of the paperwork would be. And he's the um, Northern Ireland secretary. Well, he is. The, he is the Northern there? Ireland secretary. <laughs> uh, and it was. He said yes. The agreement, the, the international agreement, which is what the withdrawal act is mm. which was signed which included the northern Ireland protocol um it does have things that were subject to fine-tuning um he's right to say that of course that's true about any any agreement the implementation does does require require discussion but you don't override it mm. which is what they've admitted they're doing now um and it it undermines what I think is the most important part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is the protection of the Good Friday Agreement, mm. peace in Northern Ireland, which is still fragile, which is still incredibly important. I mean, I noticed that um, Brendan Boyle, the US, this is Brendan Boyle, isn't it? Um, the, the US congressman mm. said the other day um, that <laughs> there's no way Congress is going to ratify an agreement with the UK if the Northern Ireland agreement has been undermined. Yes. Uh, so the idea of a trade deal with the US, having ridden a coach and horses through the Good Friday Agreement, is for the birds. Mm. So if we end up with nothing with the EU, we're not going to get anything with the US either. Mm. We are going to be, uh, it's not going to be like in Australia. It, well, it, it, they, they, they talk about the deal Australia. Well, that Australia doesn't have a deal with the US, with the EU. Let's be clear about this. That, that's mm. the point. But yeah, there are other countries that don't have deals with the EU, like North Korea. You know, this is prior status. This is rogue. This is what rogue states do. And how can we lecture the Chinese about their behaviour towards Hong Kong, which is about um, ripping up international agreements? If yeah. we're prepared to do the same with um, with withdraw that with the, the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm. So this is the territory we've now reached. Um, I mean, is this all about the continuation of the culture war? Mm. Is it all about taking people's attention away from COVID, mm. back onto Brexit, and reminding people um, who, who feel very strongly or felt very strongly about it? Um, I mean, maybe that is the, uh, the, I mean, it is out of the, the Cummings, Trump, and Bannon playbook, just to mm. quote another crook. Um, Bannon, that, well, 
maybe more than one, maybe there's more than one crook in that list of names. Uh, but <laughs> Bannon you know, is definitely a crook. <laughs> Bannon, I think we can safely say, is being uh, uh, is, is being indicted. Um, yes. So look, it's um, it is um, a very worrying, uh, very worrying time, and you know we our focus should be on getting through this crisis, mm. and the government's focus must be on keeping the promise. Mm to reach an agreement with the EU. You know, I mean, Boris Johnson, how many times are we have an oven ready deal? We've all seen the videos. Mm. We've all, we all remember what he said to get through the general election, get Brexit done, you know, in the Conservative manifesto. And hang on a minute, they passed the legislation. He negotiated the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yep. He signed it. He pushed it through after he won the election in December. And it became UK law in January, mm. so that we left on the 31st of January. If they override it now, they're overriding their own law that this government, not a previous government, that this government signed up to. So when did he discover that it wasn't a very good deal? I mean, it is utterly bizarre. And now today we see the senior law officer of the government resign over it. Yeah. So they are clearly being, um, the, the, the civil services be clearly being asked to do things that are illegal, which well, I mean, to be, <laughs> Brandon Lewis has confirmed that now, so that, 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 that's, a, that's the reality. But he wasn't prepared to do it, um, you know, uh, to, be, to be fair to uh, Jonathan Jones. Um, he said, no, I'm going to resign, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Yep. Um, but this breaches the ministerial code, they clearly don't care about that. Ministerial code says you have a, as a minister, you have a duty to comply with the law and protect the integrity of public life. Um, how far away from that we are is is is, is incredible, and this is a uh, I think this is a real dangerous time for for our country because you stay in international law um, because it protects you. Yeah, it nurtures relationships. It enables you to deliver prosperity through international trade and cooperation. Mm -hmm. You step outside of it, as I say, you said a few minutes ago, you become a pariah or a rogue state, and you become very isolated very at risk and we're not you know isolationism is never a good never a good thing and it's a real worry with the um increasing tension between the united states and china but for a country our size it's an incredibly dangerous place to be mm. um so yeah the government really needs to get on with it and and, and, and reach an agreement and stop this uh, brinksmanship and um, and all the rest of it it was their deal they signed up to it and they wanted it they must deliver it. Exactly. Um, I mean, I mean, it it does really boggle the mind as to why what the government sees as the end game is the, is the is a net benefit end game for them with this kind of rhetoric. Because I mean, it doesn't look good, right? I mean, it looks like the government knows that Labour's like your guys' line of attack throughout this crisis has been on competence, on reputation, on credibility. I mean, Boris Johnson seemed almost personally offended at PMQs last week being called incompetent all the time. It's like, well, tough. Um, and it's like, surely, surely the government should recognize that this is the kind of crisis where, of course, Labour is then going to go, oh, well, you're just being incompetent again, or you're being dangerous, reckless, you know, all these things. Um, and like, I mean... I, I, it's clearly been working um, and there must be a huge portion of the electorate for whom 
um, maybe they're resigned to Brexit uh, or maybe they wanted Brexit. Um, but doing things by the rules, as in not breaking the law, um, is paramount. Um, having responsibility. Um, and I just don't understand how a government can behave like this and think that it's not going to be turning off those voters who don't think that it is a good thing for the state to break international law and renege on treaties which they legislate for and promote and sign um i mean it's it's baffling and of, and of course you know you being the you know shadow minister for international trade this falls within this is directly within your purview i suppose isn't it um i mean this is about reputation as you were saying there about how you um about international protecting one another i mean it's it's so plausible to like imagine in a couple of years time the government this government i mean is trying to negotiate some other trading agreement and they say well well you tried to break your own treaty um and you came up stood up and said in your parliament we're going to break this treaty how can we trust that you're not going to break a treaty that you signed with us um and you mentioned the US. I mean, yeah, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, has said consistently that, as, as you said, that there will be no trade agreement that breaches the Good Friday Agreement. And if Joe Biden wins the White House, as is looking increasingly likely with um, polls the way they are, um, that chance becomes even more remote. Do you, do, you, do you think the government, I don't want to say bluffing, I mean, do, do, you, do you think it is rhetoric? Do you think it is coming style rhetoric to aggravate people, aggravate the base, rile up the base, um, aggravate the opposition, um, and then they will ultimately get a deal as happened last time when they did reach this deal, or is this now we can do what we want and we are actually going to go for no deal and we're not joking? Well, there are suggestions that Cummings wants us to invest massively in in tech and AI, mm. um, and he, he he or they believe they have to have um, uh, they have to be out of what was in the withdrawal agreement about state aid mm. uh, in order to do that. Now, um, actually, other countries like Germany uh, and France have managed to invest far more in, in state aid over the years within the EU. So, yeah. um, I mean, I've never I've never you know, whenever time I've looked at these state aid rules, it's never been the problem that the Brexiteers have claimed it is, um, and it's not a problem. It's, it's actually, if, if anything, it's more of a problem under the WTO rules than it is under EU rules, and we will still be governed by WTO rules, mm. um, unless they've decided we're not going to be in the WTO either. Um, I don't even think this lot would go that far. <laughs> uh, so so it, 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 it is possible that's what is driving it rather than the attempt to restart, the, just to restart. I mean, I think restarting the culture is definitely always in, mm. in their mind. Um, they want to, as we heard from uh, Johnson, they want to call Keir Starmer the, uh, the Remainer mm. and um, all sorts of other things that, that actually don't work. Because um, people, what people see is the incompetent Boris Johnson lacking credibility. They see the highly competent and credible Keir Starmer in contrast. Mm. Um, and so the more they do that, the more I think it pays into Keir's hands. Mm. Um, and yeah, he's, uh, his skills as a QC 
um, his background, his his record, mm. just is, is is so watertight that he, you know, they can't lay they, they can't lay a glove on him much as they uh, much as they tried last week and Dida did in the summer. Um, but they're trying to do this. They think this is a weak point for him. But I, I, I think, you know, as you as you said, Jasper, by concentrating on the fact, no, the government said they were going to do this. Yeah, we lost the election. It's up to the government to deliver. They have to make sure this goes through so we don't have problems with uh, food on the supermarket shelves or jobs in manufacturing or financial services for that matter. Mm. Um, and that we, uh, we don't have problems with the uh, arrangements in, between Northern Ireland and the mainland um, or undermine the Good Friday Agreement. Um, it is up to the government to, do, to, to deliver this. You know, we, we, we lost. We know we did. So we're not going to refight that battle. We're not going to play that game. Our job is to make sure we hold, that they keep their promise to reach a free trade agreement with the European Union that enables us to end transition with an agreement in place. That's, that was the deal. Um, and they've got to keep that promise. So I think they underestimate, um, as they have done all along, just uh, how effective and how strong Keir Starmer is. And he's got a very effect. I mean, I thought Louise Hay today was outstanding with his match boxing response. Mm. And, she's, and that was the line she took. And um, it, it, it will be, uh, it'd be fascinating to see how it plays out because my sense is the public, whilst, you know, those people who voted leave by and large don't regret their vote, they didn't want us to leave without a deal. They did recognise the need for arrangements in place to ensure that supply chains still function and the data flows still happen and that we have a good relationship with our nearest trading partners. Mm. Um, that is the case for everybody voted Remain and quite a few voted Leave. Now that's, that's a sizable majority, I, I think. So I think your point is, 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 is well made and it will be fascinating. Now the second reading of the internal market bill which is the one that's going to cause all the problems where they try and um overwrite existing domestic law and break international law that's on monday um so i think it will be fascinating but the other side of the politics of this is with the rapid increase in the number of people testing positive for covid19 it is not going to take the attention away from from the pandemic in the way they might hope so um, it may actually draw attention to their failings in handling the health crisis more than anything mm. if they attempt to do so. Yeah, sort of horrible double whammy of um, well, isn't it? Isn't disaster. It? Um, I mean, you you mentioned the culture war a couple of times there, and it's been it, it's only seemed throughout um, throughout the summer the Conservative Party. Um, trying their best to instigate these these cultural wars between themselves and the Labour Party, um, between, you know, progressives and conservatives, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I mean, the most recent example of this was the, you know, the BBC proms thing, um, for example. Um, and more recently, we've seen it with the Tony Abbott appointment um, as sort of <laughs> trade, trade representative or something like that. Um, I mean, what was, again, you know, you're the shadow minister for international trade. When, what was your, what was your response to the announcement that Tony Abbott will be representing the UK, that 
there will be a new board of trade filled with hardcore, <laughs> hardcore Brexiteers such as Daniel Hannan. Um, what was your what was your response to that when that when that broke? Well, t- well, Tony Abbott is a misogynist, a homophobe, a racist. He's a climate denier. Um, he has no relevant experience either. Um, all the trade agreements that Australia signed when he was Premier were negotiated by his trade minister, um, who actually used the, what the outgoing Labour government to negotiate and finish, the, finish them off. All Abbott did was sign them. He, he's an aggressive thug who is totally ill-suited to negotiations, actually, because you do need a bit of tax and diplomacy, funnily enough, in negotiations. And if you're representing somebody on the international stage, you want somebody who is going to get on with other people. Um, that's the last thing that somebody with his, his record uh, is likely to, to, to do. And he doesn't know the brief. So um, the only reason that he could possibly be offered the job is because... Uh, he is a, an associate of Boris Johnson and is being rewarded for supporting this country after the referendum result. Mm. Um, this is not going to end well, um, I'm afraid. And um, it's just yet another example of the cronyism um, and demonstrates, again, a lack of competence in their inability to appoint people. I mean, there are loads of people in this country. Well, aren't loads of people. There, there are some very good people <laughs> in the UK who are very well suited to represent us. Um, I mean, there are some better appointments, actually, on, to be fair, on the Board of Trade, but there are some really good ex- experts, like the Trade Policy Observatory at Sussex University, for example. Um, there are a number of others who give evidence regularly, gave evidence to the Trade Bill, which I um, uh, led on through the, the, the Commons recently, who give advice to the um, International Trade Select Committee. Um, you can follow some of them on um, on, on Twitter, it's a very good, uh, I'll, I'll make a plug for David Hennig today because uh, he's okay. been tweeting a lot about uh, about the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example. These people know what they're doing. They would be very well placed to advise the government as they have in the past, uh, including Conservative governments, not just um, before that with us. Mm. Um, and they understand international trade, they understand the complexities, they have the relationship, and again, they have the relationships. And trade like, um, any, anything complex in negotiations, it's mm. true in the private sector, it's true in the public sector, it's true between governments. It, it is all, a lot of it is about good relationships, people getting on, people being able to reach agreement uh, and to compromise um, and to collaborate. And that is the, uh, that's the art of success in these things. And um, Abbott is um, the last person who fits the description I've just given. Exactly. I mean, I can I can agree more. Um, and I mean, do do you think it's possible that he won't really have like a substantive role in representing the? Well, he won't have a substantive role in in trade negotiations, and he'll purely just be a sort of front man to sort of like go in, smile at some photos, shake some hands, maybe sign some things. Um, but the the actual the meat of the work will be done by other figures. Um, or do you think? Does it, do you think it seems like he is going to have a substantive role? Well, well Abbott is an advisor to the Board of Trade. Mm. Um, so he's not going to be leading the negotiations. That's, you're, you're quite right about that. Um, but it's, it, it's an indication of the kind of person they want advising them. Mm. Um, it's an indication of what it says to the rest of the world. You know, just as breaking international law 
gives an appallingly bad message to the rest of the world. So does so does appointing a bigger racist homophobe climate denier. Yep. When, uh, when when you're when you're looking to be taken seriously, um, yeah. When especially when you're about to host COP twenty six next year, mm. um, you're supposed to be taking taking a lead on um, tackling the the climate emergency as 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 we are. Mm. Um, I mean, this is a man who was rejected by his own party, then by his own constituents for being useless. He, dis- he, he destroyed, systematically destroyed the Australian car industry. And before anybody shouts, you just said you want to do something about cl- the, the climate crisis. Yes, I do. I want to change to an electric car industry and a hydrogen vehicle, vehicle <laughs> industry. But if you haven't got a car industry to start with, you can't change it over to, um, to renewable energy. Mm. And, um, yeah, there, there is so much in his record of failure that says this is the last person you should be pointing to do anything mm. um, that you you can only say they are only interested in people who who say yes and actually if you look across government with the um to be fair to him um uh, quite remarkable exception of rishi sunak um pretty much everybody else in the cabinet and in senior positions in government more generally is not there because of their competence they are there because they are prepared to slavishly adhere to the Cummings Johnson line and follow instructions. And that is catching the government out every day of the week. Um, whether he, uh, whether Rishi Sunak survives the, uh, the crisis intact and, uh, intact and his reputation survives is another question. Mm. Um, but um, you know, he, he does stand out as, uh, and I think the polls show this, don't they? Uh, but, He's the one member of the government who's got got some kind of solid reputation. Yes, certainly. I mean, I, I, I do think that his reputation won't survive. I mean, if you have a high reputation in politics, the only way forward is down um, <laughs> more often than not. Um, and, well, and he'll also be tarnished by the conservative brand, which yes. is, is, is not, not looking great. Yeah, and I mean, that's just the, the sort of hard rule of politics, isn't it? That mm. you're if you're in... If you're in national politics, if you're a national important figure, then more likely than not, your political career will end in some kind of some kind of failure. I mean, Boris Johnson was hegemonic, um, super popular. Um, he was going to define conservatism for the next ten years, just back in December, and now newspapers are openly quoting various conservative MPs who are questioning whether he's even going to be the PM in the next election when he's going to stand down. You know, th- this does just happen to politicians and it will happen to Rishi Sunak eventually. Who knows when remains to be seen. But um, the the time aspect is also really important here because we're in, we're in 2020. The next election is not until 2024. So much has happened this year alone to destroy the government's reputation for competence. And I mean, at least from my perspective, looking at what the government prioritizes, it is starting these culture wars. It is appointing people like Tony Abbott with the intention of aggravating, um, you know, progressives, liberals, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone knows the drill by this point. Um, And I mean, I, I think fundamentally that comes from a place of they are ultimately running a political project and it's comparable to the Republicans in the USA, which isn't actually a substantive political project. It's just a sequence of gripes with modern life, um, of cultural gripes with modernity um, and trying to channel that into political power. And but that's not sustainable over the long term. We've got four more years of this. I mean, it sounds awful, but we do. <laughs> um, and 
do you, do you think the government will just be forced to eventually you know take more responsibility and change tack and all those sorts of things um at some point over the next four years or is it just going to be a really does your gut tell you it's going to be a horrible grinding this every day but for four years i think uh, there are signs of where there will be rebellions whether they're sizable enough to force them to change tack is, is, is a different question um they're packing the house of lords which is so we the the trade bill was an example we had a we had a small rebellion mm. um against the government on the lack of scrutiny or complete absence of scrutiny of, of, of international trade negotiations mm. that will go to the lords where there's more chance of amendments being passed um and um i think we heard today from theresa may we heard it from bob neil we heard it from a number of other conservatives very unhappy with this breach of international law so i think the internal market bill will be at one such test for them whether people in the end rebel is another question because boris johnson has already demonstrated he'll take the whip away mm. um he did it last year he's already done it to um the new chair of the um intelligence and security committee hasn't he um julian lewis for da- for daring to be his uh, his, his placement uh, yeah. the uh, um wonderful failing chris grayling exactly. um he failed again failed to win a rigged election this time <laughs> uh following his multiple failures as a secretary of state now uh so yeah it's hard it's hard to say i mean i'll go back to something you said earlier though jasper mm. you said um joe biden's gonna win now i hope he does mm. i sincerely hope he does um i think you might i think you're probably right he'll probably win the problem is is winning the election going to be enough to get rid of donald trump Mm. um now actually hillary clinton beat trump by three million last time trump president i think biden could beat him by six million whether that does the job because of voter suppression through mail-in ballots through intimidation on the day Mm -hmm. um through the behavior of, of republican officials in some of the battleground states i don't know um and even if they do manage to beat him in the electoral college, will Trump accept defeat and not challenge the result, saying it was a rigged election for the reasons that he has already suggested, which yes, actually yes. are of course of his own making. Yes. Um, so I do worry, and I also worry for this country that if whether um, Trump is successful or not, actually, we will see voter suppression, we will see intimidation, we will see an increasing use of yes the culture war but uh other methods like the far right going to the um hotels where um refugees are staying and intimidating them scaring the hell out of them and leading to physical violence ultimately thank goodness we don't have a big gun culture in this country yep um in the way they do in the united states but um, all of these things are of, of great concern. And many of the same behaviors that we saw in the 1930s that led to the rise of, of, of the fascists and ultimately a war to defeat fascism mm. are in play now. Ironically, in, the other, in countries that fought fascism rather than the countries that, that, that um, produced fascism, fascism. Not, not, in all, not in all cases actually, because. Um, I think Hungary had a fascist leadership in the mm. 30s, as it does now. But um, that is a 
battle that we have to have and that we have to win. Um, and it is by no means certain that we'll win it. And the far right and its allies are adept at using social media and the media more widely and control mm. some of it, or certainly have significant influence in it. Yeah, the idea of a Fox News style TV channel in this country being promoted. Um, it, it's um, it's a real real problem, and um, yeah, we've got a we've got a job of work to do. And so, you know, pushing messages like we're discussing today as widely as possible is, is, is crucial to it. So, thank you for the contribution you're making. Um, and, um, I'll just um, I'll just uh, we're probably going to come to a close now. But I was just going to ask you a question: How, how are you feeling about yeah. going back to university? Um, <laughs> with, with 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 all the concerns about um, uh, you know social distancing yeah. and you know, the potential for a million students on the move and mm. all of those things and it being younger people that are um, <laughs> predominantly uh, yeah it's all your fault Jasper it's my, it's, but, uh, I mean you know. I mean yeah I mean I mean I oh, do. It is, more, there is a more serious question there. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do think we are going to be blamed um, as we already are starting to be blamed. It's going to be the student's fault for, for you know, whatever reason. Um, <laughs> it's not usually me being asked the questions on, on the podcast, but <laughs> I'll give it a go. Um, I am feeling, I mean, it, it's difficult, it's complicated because the rational side of me recognizes that internal migration of 1 million students and their families across the country um, during a pandemic in, in a place when cases are already rising sounds like a recipe for disaster. Um, but on the other hand, there is the emotional side of things of I and all those other students have been away from, you know, the places which, uh, where we work and study and, you know, in, in some instances where we're just like calling home, um, and we've been away for like six months now. Um, and the prospect of not returning just sounds really sounds like it just could be like so damaging to um the whole university experience um for young people in the long term because i I don't think it's just about you know some people hear the university experiences oh you just mean like going out clubbing or whatever and i I don't think (laughs) i don't think it's that at all I, i think it's about learning to live independently it's about acquiring those skills which are really important for adulthood um about you know sort of acting as the transition between being a child essentially and and becoming an adult and then going into the world of work and and living the rest of your life and i do worry i mean me personally i i mean i'm i'm just going to my second year at university but i took a few gap years between sixth form university so i i'd sort of already had quite a lot of experience of living semi-independently and doing my own thing but a lot of people haven't um and for incoming freshers, um, so people who are starting their first year this year who've just finished, who just had a terrible exams debacle, um, mm. the prospect of them being at home for even longer or just doing their classes online. Um, I mean, I, I t- whenever we talk about education on the podcast, I always bang on about this, but you know, the, these things have a long tail. Um, and I worry about what this is going to do to like individuals long-term if the pro if the process of growing up essentially and that transition um is delayed or sort of removed entirely um i mean maybe we'll get to a place where everyone moves back and then relatively quickly students get quarantined and campuses get shut down um you'll still be there you'll still be independent but um 
Quite you can get stuff isolated like in your in your in, in your, your room well, instead yes, exactly. of home, yeah. Um, so the parental home. So That's not a great prospect, is it? Yeah. No. So um. so um so so it's 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 complicated because yeah you have to recognise. Yeah. Yeah, you, you've, you've made a, you've made a really good point about the long tail, actually, which is the the damage. I mean, my my generation, probably people a year or two older than me, to be honest, who really struggled because of the recession of the early nineteen eighties, hmm. and they they never caught up, and um, we risk that. Yeah, with the longer this goes on, we risk that for a very large number of young people. Mm. And I and I, I think you're right. You you you're absolutely exactly right to, to pinpoint that as a challenge, which is why the um, the government needs to get this kickstart program right. And it's the mm. it's the centerpiece, I think, of the of, of the debate we've called for opposition day tomorrow. Actually, on okay, your jobs and the, job the business and and jobs. Although I probably will focus on the things I've been talking to you about more than than than, than there, because other people will be making the the, the points about sport for younger people. Mm. But it, it has to, you know, that's a, that's a program that has to be available right across the um, employment spectrum for large and small organisations. And I think mm. the danger is it won't be, and it'll mm. be done half-heartedly, as, as so often with these things. But look, that's a, that is a topic for another podcast on another day, possibly <laughs> with another guest. But um, it's been um, absolutely brilliant to talk to you. It's been a pleasure, as usual. Thank you so much for coming back on. And uh, I'll uh, will you good luck with going back to to, to uni. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I will speak to you again soon. Speak to you soon. of the social review podcast draws to a close thank you so much for listening thank you so much to uh, bill Asterson for coming on and chatting to us again um, about all things international trade and the sheer disastrousness of this government uh, still at time of recording we're awaiting to see whether the government will breach international law what a fun waiting game that is as usual if you enjoy the podcast do tell your friends share it on twitter social network of your choice give it a positive rating on itunes all those sorts of things um, that would be enormously appreciated excitingly we have a bonus episode going out over the weekend which is an interview with christian parenti who's an academic and author of radical hamilton economic lessons from a misunderstood founder so yes we're going to be talking about alexander hamilton thanks again and you will hear us very soon Goodbye.